The text this morning, and if you want to turn there in your word, is Ephesians 6, 4. And this is a continuation of the message I began last Lord's Day as we also celebrated and participated in two baptisms of our covenant children. And we now continue in that um, that same train of thought as we consider now covenant faithfulness. I've entitled the message, Our Children, Our Faith, and Our Obedience, directing it mostly this morning to the fathers, but it is inclusive of all of us as we are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and are to live in covenant faithfulness, taking heed, first of all, to our own responsibilities in living faithfully before God. Now hear the word of the Lord. One simple verse, Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, which art in heaven, in the preaching of this word, your word, and the receiving of it, May it be our worship to you this day, and hallow your name in our midst and through this, encouraging us and prompting us, exhorting us to be faithful to the covenant promises, to the covenant obligations, to lay hold on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to believe his promises. Grant us, O Lord, the faith to believe in the grace of this matter. How thankful we are that our God is faithful and He accomplishes all that He has promised and He is all wise and you are that which no one can stay your hand and you will do all of your holy will. How thankful we are that you have included us and our children into these promises and into your will. And now we ask you to open our eyes to the truth of the Scriptures. And may your spirit work in the hearts of us all, that we would rejoice in your faithfulness, and in likewise be faithful as you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. A very important question, and one that I had to grapple with for some time, that I would like to pose to you today whether you have children or are a child or will be a parent one day, is this question, and it is a critical question, and it will shape the entirety of the way that you think about children and how you raise them. The question is this, how do you view your children? How do you see them? It's a worldview question, and how you think about the answer to that question will yield a manner of life and a kind of training that you will give them. Right thinking produces right behavior, and a right worldview of your children is critical. So how do you view your children? The children in our congregation, as we look around, and those that we baptize, this is the future heritage. This is the future church. 
They are part of the church today, but when we are buried in the ground and years later, they will be the ones that will carry on the torch. So how we view them when they come into this world and we baptize them as infants, that's the question I would like for us to consider this morning. It's a critical question that has a critical answer. The Scripture here commands fathers. It addresses the fathers as it is going through application, which is application of the doctrine of the church. It then speaks to fathers in a very particular and pointed manner. Fathers. Fathers. And the point here is that fathers, you are responsible And fathers, you need to own that responsibility and how your children turn out. You need to own that responsibility before they grow up. And then you need to live responsibly today in training them toward that vision of faith. There are two instructions given to fathers, addressed to fathers in the context of the doctrine and application of the church, two instructions, one negative and one positive. Fathers, and the scripture then commands, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now this is speaking about a manner of parenting that characteristically exasperates or frustrates The children. Something in the way, in the manner in which the father is living or parenting his household. A father who will not lead. A father who will not be a father. A father who will not be a godly husband to the children's mother. A father who is a perfectionist who can never be pleased, a father who is always changing his mind or never doing what he says he's going to do habitually. These are just examples of character issues that can exasperate children and can frustrate them. Don't be a father that frustrates your children in your home and your raising. That's the negative command given to fathers. But then the scripture positively commands them to bring them up. And that is the idea to raise them up to maturity. That is our responsibility as fathers to raise our children up to spiritual maturity. And there are two ways in which the scripture points out that we are to bring them up. We are to bring them up in the nurture, and there's the word padea, the nurture of the Lord, That is a teaching and instruction, but it's not merely a mind teaching, oh, it includes that, but this is a holistic teaching, a formative education that shapes their hearts and their minds and their character and their behavior. It addresses the entirety of their being. It is the idea of cultivating our children or fostering them, engendering in them the things of Christ, instilling in them, indoctrinating them, shaping their hearts in a formative education 
that it shapes the entirety of the child's life in a very deliberate way. That's the idea of nurture. But fathers are also to bring them up, to raise them to maturity in the admonition. And here is the idea, or there's the word, nutheto, or nuthetic. We sometimes talk about nuthetic counseling, and we think about that as biblical counseling, which it is, but the word nutheto, or nuthetic, is the idea of admonition. It is instructional warning. It's much in the, the vein of when Solomon brings his son aside and he takes him out and he points to different things in life. Now look at the sluggard, look at his vineyard. Okay, There's an instructional warning not to be like that. Now look at the simpleton going after the harlot, uh, warning a son. It's to impart instruction by setting something right, even a correction of the child's behavior. The example from classical Greek would be Socrates, who would then take someone aside who has unintentionally given a false account of something in order to instruct the student and to warn him. It's a corrective training where wrong behavior is present. And so the idea of admonition is designed to correct a person who was doing something wrong while not provoking them or embittering them. Now the qualifying phrase over that positive nurture and admonition is a qualifying phrase of the Lord. And that's an important concept, quintessentially important. Because it addresses the worldview a father is to have in the cultivation and in the admonition. It is this worldview of his children that makes a big difference in the little ways he goes about their cultivation and training. A worldview, as we are learning in our Tuesday evening class, is like a set of lenses that we look through. And we're often not aware of the lenses, uh, how we're perceiving through these spectacles. It's not something that we're looking at, it's something in which we're looking through. And that worldview, for the most part, we're unaware of. It has been trained and formed by lots of factors in our lived-out experience of life, forged from very early on in the way that We have grown up in our homes, the friends that we've had, the experiences that we have shared. And yet our children will develop their worldview from our own. And this shaping in the way that the children see the world is one of the most important cultivations in their Christian upbringing. And that responsibility is given to fathers. Now, there is a grammatical thing that we should note here, and there is a genitive. A genitive is an X of Y relationship, and we have this going on here of the Lord. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, how are we to look at that X of Y relationship is really important, and here 
That particular one for you Greek students is a subjective genitive. And that subject is the Lord himself who is the one that's doing the action of nurturing and admonition. So fathers, bring them up in the Lord's nurture and in the Lord's admonition. That's the idea. That places the father as the agent of the Lord's discipleship of his children. Fathers, you are in a very special covenant relationship that is parallel to God in the lives of your children. And oftentimes what your children will form in their opinions of God are something that you shaped in them and your relationship to them. You are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ to your children. And that is something to take with full responsibility because it is the Lord's admonition and the Lord's discipleship of your children using you as his agent. That's where you have to own this responsibility. But the way we understand that relationship and that responsibility is critical. Now, do we, as fathers, in faith, raise our children to faith? Or do we presume our children are not of the faith, and therefore we constantly question our kids' faith to the extent that they are always doubting themselves? Do we raise them to trust God or to doubt themselves? This is a critical difference. This is a worldview difference. One leads to knowledge and security of who the child is in Christ. The other leads to great insecurity in the child, wondering who or she is, if, and they often then go on a quest to find themselves and their purpose and how they fit into life in this world. These are important distinctions to make theologically and in our worldview because they impact the very spirit of the child in the deep recesses of his or her heart. If a father is constantly sowing seeds of doubt about the child's genuineness of his or her faith, then the quality of the child's faith, or perhaps even the quantity of it, outweighs the object of it. And if you heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a thousand times, the value of faith is in its object. And if Christ is the object of your faith, that gives it its value. A child's perspective and understanding of God will be largely influenced by the manner and the character of the father in the home in his own faith in the Lord and how he lives that out. 
And that's why I limited last Lord's Day's sermon to one application and one only. And that is that your children might see the example of the gospel lived out in your own life in their home. An example of owning sin, an example of confessing sin, an example of repenting from sin, an example of seeking their forgiveness for your sin, an example of seeing the glorious forgiveness and the thanksgiving that comes as a result of the joy of salvation in Christ in Him alone. They need to see that. They need to be a part of that participation. As we saw from last Lord's Day, the covenant relationship that we have with God is much broader than individuals. It is a different worldview altogether than the individualism that is so prominent in the world and in the evangelical church today. It has significant applications for the way we view one another and the way we view our children. It is a covenantal worldview, not an individualistic worldview. When we come into a covenant relationship with God, by virtue of the way that covenant relationship works, by the way that God has orchestrated, by the way that God has given it to us, we come into a special relationship one with another. Necessarily so. The Bible tells us that we are now family members in the household of God. We are members organically related to each other by the Holy Spirit as living stones ingrown into one another and into the historic church upon which Christ is the chief cornerstone that we just sang. But in addition, when we come into a covenant relationship with God, our children under our headship also come into a special covenant relationship with God as well. God has promised not only to us to be our God, but He has also promised to us that He would be the God of our children. And that's a gospel covenant promise. And God promised not only for them to believe this, but he promised this to us parents who believe this. And this is further enforced as God gave the sign of circumcision under the old covenant, baptism under the new covenant. And so the question before it says, well, what does that mean? How are we to understand that, that children are in the covenant? And once we understand it, then how are we to live faithfully in harmony with the Bible's teaching on the very baptism that we brought them forth to do? As we considered last Lord's Day, God's covenant with His people includes promises it includes promises to them. It also includes curses. The promises of the covenant hold for those who meet the conditions attached to those promises. But that those promises do not hold 
for those who do not meet the conditions of the promises that are held out. That's what a covenant relationship is. See, when God holds out a promise in his covenant, and we do not lay hold on that promise by faith, that covenant promise is not going to benefit us personally. God will still be faithful. He will still bring forth the Messiah through the seed of David. But along the way, those who lay hold on the covenant promise for themselves will enjoy the blessings and the benefits, but those who do not will not personally be benefited. That's the nature of the covenant. Now, understanding and believing God's promise on this point is a very important aspect to our worldview. And this morning, I want to give us three different views by Presbyterians who deny that a real promise of salvation is made in the covenant to children born to Christian parents. These views emerge from grappling with the fact that not all baptized children are saved. And then there is a justification of God to try to save face, if you will, or to vindicate God that is given in order to maintain his integrity and faithfulness to the covenant. It's this tension that they're grappling with that there are three different views that are very prominent in our kinds of circles. In other words, if God is faithful and he promised salvation to the church's children, then why are not all of them saved? It's another way of grappling with it. If we conclude that they are not all saved, then how do we solve the tension to maintain God's integrity with what he promised? I'm just fleshing it out from different perspectives so we know the nature of the problem that these particular three arguments are seeking to solve. The first particular argument, I'll call it the elect infant solution. This argument proposes that the promise of the covenant is made only to elect infants and not to Christian children generally. That is a hyper-Calvinist position that is represented by Herman Hoxima. Now, this particular position argues that if God promised anything to children who do not come to faith and go to heaven, it is an open door to Arminianism. This position is stating that God would not make a promise he's not willing to fulfill. So it is maintaining the integrity of God's faithfulness to his promise, and the promise is real, but the promise can only be to the elect children because we know that all the elect children will end up in heaven, will be saved. Therefore, if we see that not all covenant children are saved, then the promise, according to this view, is not made to all covenant children. It is only made to the elect children. You kind of understand the nature of that argument? This position believes that any other way to look at, it, at this is going to suspend salvation on the faithfulness of men. 
And they're going to take in this position, they would then say that that would deny man's inability or his total depravity, and it also denies God's grace. The promise, as this argument goes, must ultimately be absolutely unconditional. Thankfully, this is a minority position among Presbyterians. This is not the way the Bible speaks of covenantal obligations and faithfulness and responsibilities. If one holds to this worldview position that I just espoused or just revealed, if one holds to this worldview position of the covenant children, he will likely then act irresponsibly and fatalistically. It is a hyper-Calvinist position. He will likely not give the due diligence to the hard work required of him as a father, the hard work that is the fruit of his own personal faith and trusting in the grace of God for his children. The very characteristic of the covenant relationship is that the fulfillment of the promise is always suspended on the fulfillment of the obligations. Conditions are attributes of a covenant relationship. If there are no conditions of a covenant, there really is not a covenant. But it should be noted that divine grace does not abolish conditions, rather it sees to their fulfillment. See, grace is necessary precisely because there are conditions to fulfill. Grace is necessary because in and of ourselves we cannot fulfill them. People in the church are not lost because no promise was ever made to them, but because they failed to obtain what was promised through faith that worked obediently unto the gospel. This is the way the Bible speaks about it, and we do well to speak the way that the Bible speaks. That's position number one. The next position is what I call the privilege position. This argument proposes that the promise made in the covenant is not a promise of salvation, but a promise of privilege. James Henley Thornwell and Robert Louis Dabney are the ones that espoused and held to this position and taught it and preached it. And they had an understanding of salvation that was largely shaped by the Great Awakening and the worldview of revivalism in their day. They saw the covenant in respect of covenant children, not as a promise to their salvation, but as a great privilege given to them. A privilege of being able to grow up in the church, a privilege of being under the word and being in the atmosphere of the Christian influences and uh, the sacraments administered as they watched. Their view of children was that they should not be regarded as Christians until they profess faith. Their position presumes that covenant children are 
unregenerate until they prove the contrary, and therefore the covenant promise cannot mean that covenant offers salvation to the covenant children. Dabney actually viewed baptized children in the church as only quasi-members of the church. He regards covenant children as in the church, but of the world. It's a worldview that has drastic implications. The paradigm for raising covenant children is not covenant nurture, but rather evangelizing them. There is a difference. It is a worldview issue. As Robert Rayburn said, quote, the promise is offered with the one hand and then withdrawn with the other. Talking about a way to frustrate a child in the nurture of Christ. This position is really no different than a, a Baptistic view of children. And I believe it's radically inconsistent with the Scripture and the way that the Bible reveals the covenant. Taken to its consistency, the children should not be taught to pray or worship or join in family worship until such a time there is a valid evidence of a profession of faith that proves that they are not unregenerate any longer. It's a worldview that collapses upon itself. This view also should be noted is a stark departure from the historic position held in Presbyterian churches since the day of Calvin. And yet... It is probably the most common view held today by Reformed Christians. There is a, a promise of the covenant, but it's a vague and an uncertain thing. It's not the same character as the covenant that God makes with the adult believer. It's of a different sort. It has to be, according to this view. So the promise is to reconstruct the promise made to the children as one of being in a privileged upbringing only, not one of a promise of eternal life. You can see now why so many Presbyterian churches don't serve their children communion. They're only halfway, not full members, quasi-members. They're in the church but of the world. You can see how this worldview will shape the way we think about our children. That's why most Presbyterian churches have what's called a communicant membership and a non-communicant membership. Non-communicant membership means they're a member in the church by baptism, but they don't commune yet until they can prove themselves in a way that would satisfy man. That's not the way that the Bible reveals how we are to live out covenant faithfulness and to raise up our children in the, in the Lord's nurture and in the Lord's admonition to them. When God's covenant promises are given, they include a promise of eternal life and are always suspended upon conditions. And when the conditions are met, the promise is fulfilled. Whether we're talking about the, 
nurture of children in the covenant or whether we're talking about an adult responding to the offer of the salvation of the gospel, the covenant promise is the same. The third position is one that I'll call the proverbial solution. This argument proposes that the promise of the covenant that was given to our children, for us and our children, is to be taken in a generality, that it holds in many cases, but it cannot be claimed on all. Generalizing the promise and its conditions by making it proverbial. This position not only denies that the conditions of faithful parent, parental nurture is attached to the covenant promise. See, per- parental nurture is an instrument by which many children are usually brought to li- living faith, but it is not uniformly the case that such nurture always produces that happy result. It's the idea of being proverbial. You can't count on it. You can't bank on it. You can't bet on it. It's just usually the case. And that's how they would view the covenant promise to us parents for our children. And it's usually the case, but don't bank on it. Now, as we think about the Proverbs, there are some Proverbs that have this somewhat proverbial nature to them. For instance, like Proverbs 16, 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. While that may be proverbially true, we know that Jesus and the Apostle Paul and many other martyrs demonstrated that is not always the case, that one's enemies will be at peace with them. So we think about that as a proverbial truth. In this way, it is possible to argue that the faithful nurture of children is important and we may contribute to their salvation. Likewise, in this position, it is possible to accept that there is a basis for the Bible connecting our failure as parents to the nurture of the spiritual death of our children without having to argue that such a connection exists in every single case. We should note, however, it is not true that even the majority of the Proverbs teaching are proverbial in that proverbial sense of the truth, of only being generally true. And this is especially the case when those Proverbs contain certain theological truth that that truth elsewhere throughout the Scriptures is first and foremost taught on the things of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of salvation. For instance, the proverb that says in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's a number of those Proverbs in the 16th chapter of the Proverbs, very much like that. Such statements like those are not merely proverbial truths. They are usually, they are not things that are usually true. 
Rather, they are declared facts because divine sovereignty is taught everywhere in all of the details throughout all of the Bible and all of life. And in the same way, the biblical data regarding the covenant nurture of children and the hope that springs from that nurture is taught everywhere in the Bible. And it lays down the biblical doctrine of the covenant that our children have a place in. No one takes the promises of God regarding salvation and turns them into proverbial truths. Whatever the promise is to us, it is to our children. If we believe it for us, it is true for us. If the children believe it for them, it is true for the children. And the promise is also when it is given to us for our personal salvation includes the children's well-being in that. If we believe that and nurture them up in the faith, faithful to the covenant, see. See, it's more than a proverbial generalization that we can maybe hope for. Can you imagine saying to an unbeliever, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a strong possibility that you and your house will be saved. Or that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a great likelihood that you will be saved. It will be usually the case. But don't bank on it, don't count on it, don't bet on it. That's not the way that the Bible reveals the covenant nor the covenant obligations or the covenant promises, the covenant expectations. This is not the way the Bible holds out the promises of life and it is salvation and eternal life of which it is holding out to us and to our children. The covenant promise is a real promise of salvation giving to us and to our children. A promise which is suspended upon the conditions that must be met. And because of a skewed worldview, or these various worldviews, in which parents view their covenant children, many do not take to heart the faithfulness of God in those promises, and therefore, they do not live faithfully themselves in the covenant nurture of their covenant children. Oftentimes, the presupposition is they doubt God, or it's usually the case, or I don't know if my children are elect, so case sirrah, sirrah. Or they're just a privileged lot, it's completely up to them. Whatever our worldview is and how we view our children is going to affect the way that we give them Christ nurture and Christ admonition. And if you believe that your children's faith can be nurtured by means and that God's grace in their lives comes to them ordinarily through means, that should give us a great encouragement and a prompting to be about the nurturing of their faith. The way the Bible would have us to view our baptized children 
is the Bible would have us to view them as believers and that God is faithful to his covenant promises. Yes, we are to view them as believers, a believers whose faith needs development and nurtured. Believers, yes, who are immature, but believers nonetheless. That's how we're to view our baptized children. That's how the Scripture tells us to view our baptized children. In Deuteronomy, the the Scripture says that the secret things are those things that belong to the Lord. But those things revealed belong to us and our children. It is not for us to think about if our children are elect or not. Those are the secret things of the Lord. But how the Bible reveals through His Word to us belong to us and our children. How does the Bible reveal our baptized children? As David said in Psalm 22, here is what the Bible reveals about an infant. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That's revelation. That's how we are to view these things. And so we take the revelation and we believe what the revelation says. That's what we believe that the revelation instructs us to believe, that our children are believers. Now, first and foremost, an individual is accountable and responsible for his own faith and life no matter the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of his parents. There can be absolutely no blame shifting in this covenant. However, the Bible also reveals that parents share a responsibility and a deep accountability before God for the spiritual results of their children. And if you believe that, then your obedience will act in accord with it. Granted, there is some mystery here that I confess. Just as there is a mystery between God's grace and man's free will, of God's sovereignty and man's covenantal responsibility. There's going to be some mysteries here that we will not ultimately resolve. But we never limit our faith and our obedience to understanding. We must be faithful in the way that Scriptures has informed us to be faithful. And when we are, we can expect God to be faithful to His covenant promises. And this is how we are to view our children. God is faithful to his covenant promises to us and to our children. So let us be faithful as fathers also. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the word of instruction today. And we leave it with the Spirit of God to prompt in our hearts the changes, the applications, and the encouragement that must be forthcoming for us to live these things out more faithfully in the covenant before the presence of Almighty God. O Father, You are gracious and merciful. You have 
sought us out and chose us. You have been gracious to us even before the foundation of the world. You are sovereign over all of our affairs. And you have illuminated us with the great privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, bringing forth the fruit of faith in our life through the regenerative work of the Spirit of God. And at the same time, you give us the promise of eternal life that is not only to us, but to our children. And we ask that you would strengthen our faith and change our worldview to be biblical, that we would act in that faith upon the parental nurture of our children to nurture their faith. To encourage them to believe their Father and God and their Creator and the Lord Jesus and His resurrection. That we might teach them and cultivate not only their minds, but the way they believe and the, the strength of their security in Christ. That we might work to shape their hearts by indoctrinating them with the truth and enveloping them in the praises and thanksgiving and in the worship and the sacraments and the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, that they might know they are full members in the covenant and in the church of Jesus Christ. Help them, O oh God, to see their identity in Christ in the church. That they might be well satisfied and secure with who they are and the position you place them by your grace. And that you would well up in them a life of faith and faithfulness to all that you are instructing your disciples. How thankful we are for the blessedness of covenant children, which are your children, being given to us with great responsibilities to raise them up in your nurture and your admonition in the context of the church. Be with our children, O oh God, and grant them grace to believe in spite of all of our weaknesses and our, and our mistakes that we make and our sins that we do not represent you well. Lord, where our sin has abounded, Lord, may your grace abound all the more over their lives and save them to the uttermost as they draw near unto you by faith, nurtured in their homes by faithful fathers. Oh God, be merciful to us. We recognize our mistakes all too often. But we also don't always see our worldview and how faulty it is and how unbiblical it often is that affects the manner in which we do this with our children. We create distrust and disharmony and disrespect and dishonor for the things of God by our own lives. Forgive us. We, we breed in them worry and anxiety over things that you have promised. Forgive us. Oh God, may we be better examples that they can see the gospel lived out in their lives and in, in front of them. That they might have the joy made full in them even to greater heights than we ourselves have. May we provide strong shoulders of faith on which they can stand to see with greater height the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Fill them with your Spirit from an early and tender age that the Lord may always be the Lord of their lives 
and grow them in the maturity of this. Lord, we ask for your mercy upon us all and your grace to abound in us all and that we might be strong in the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and see that you are faithful to your promises and to believe it without question. We thank you. You're a God that never lies. And when you give a promise, it is a promise indeed. A promise that can be counted on. A promise that we can trust. Oh Lord, help our unbelief. And help us to stand firmly upon the promises knowing that you are faithful to everything you have declared in your word. We pray this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake, and for his children, amen.